0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Haan's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehaan.com. In this episode, we feature a talk and a conversation with novelist Yaa Jesse. In 2016, Yad Jesse's first novel, Homegoing, was published and it immediately landed on the bestseller list, was awarded prizes, and was praised by Zadie Smith as spectacular, by Ta-Nehisi Coates as an inspiration, and widely hailed as one of the best books of that year. We invited Jesse to join us as part of Portland Arts and Lectures to talk about her second book, Transcendent Kingdom, published just last year and also a bestseller. Like Homegoing, Transcendent Kingdom explores the constant presence of the past, but where homegoing spans centuries and continents, Transcendent Kingdom unfolds on a more granular and intimate scale. But in many ways, this talk is less about writing than it is about the power of reading, an act that is so powerful that people died so that others might experience it, so powerful that it can force the reader to contend with the humanity of someone they do not know and will never meet, someone perhaps from another century. We learn of the profound impact of Toni Morrison on Jessie, her journey to becoming a writer, and how she grapples in her fiction with what she calls the afterlife of slavery, asking the question, is slavery even over? In the second half of this episode, she joins me for a conversation about both her books and the influences that shaped them. Here's Jessie.
1: When I read Toni Morrison for the first time, I was 17 years old. I lived with my parents and two brothers in a three bedroom house on Running Mead Trail in Huntsville, Alabama. Before this house, there had been rented apartments in Ohio, Illinois, Tennessee. In Ohio, I had shared a room with my older brother until my younger brother came along and gender being what it was back then, the two of them were paired together. I liked living in Ohio. Tony Morrison was born in Lorain, Ohio, but I didn't know that yet. I didn't know her yet. Back then, what I knew was my nuclear family, though I didn't know that term, nuclear family. I knew that other people had grandparents and uncles and cousins and aunts, but I didn't. Or rather, I did just an ocean an airplane away. I'd been on an airplane before, but I didn't remember that either. I was two when I left Ghana. My memories of the place were long gone, or perhaps they never truly formed. The hippocampus, that memory factory, takes about two and a half years to develop. A few years ago, on a flight from Amsterdam, to New York, I saw a West African woman wrangling two young children as they tore through the aisles, and I thought, there it is, the memory that never was. There were times before the pandemic when I'm on an airplane at least once a week. But back then, when I was still just a young girl living in Ohio, Illinois, Tennessee, and Alabama. My modes of travel were both simple, feet, cars, buses, and deeply, unimaginably complex books. Toni Morrison once wrote an essay titled, The Sight of Memory. She wasn't writing about the hippocampus. She was writing about the lineage of autobiography, that she had inherited simply by the fact of being a Black writer in a country where Black language was suppressed. As she notes, in this country, the print origins of Black literature were slave narratives. She says, whatever the style and circumstances of these narratives, they were written to say principally two things. One, This is my historical life, my singular, special example that is personal, but that also represents the race. Two, I write this text to persuade other people, you, the reader, who is probably not black, that we are human beings worthy of God's grace and the immediate abandonment of slavery. The first book I was ever assigned in school that was written by a Black author was A Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. This memoir, published in 1845, was utterly harrowing to read as a 15-year-old. In it, Douglass describes the great lengths he went to in order to learn how to read. For reading, for slaves, was a punishable offense with punishments ranging from the cutting off of hands to the plucking out of eyes. A narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass is therefore in many ways a defiant treatise on reading. This talk is also a treatise on reading, but certainly less defiant much less urgent. So many of the privileges that I enjoy today as a successful black female writer were hard won. In Morrison's The Sight of Memory, she talks about the lineage of black narrative, about Frederick Douglass's legacy. And in Douglass's work, he talks about the many who were quite literally cut off from the world of literacy, who lost their eyes, their hands, their lives, for the very pursuit of the world of the word. When I say that I believe in the power of reading, the unbelievable, undeniable power of holding a book, knowing more when you leave a book than you did when you entered it, what I mean is that people died so that I might read in America, so that I might write. The second book by a black writer that I was ever assigned was Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. I was 17 years old, living in Huntsville, Alabama. I already suspected that I wanted to be a writer, that this strange little thing I did Creating people and worlds and stories in my head, then scrawling them down in my little purple notebook late into the evening, was not something that most other people did. Back then, I read so much that I was something of a minor celebrity at my local library. When my father took me to get my first library card, the librarian, stern, as librarians can be, reminded me that I had only two weeks before I'd have to return or recheck the books. I looked at my stack of books, then looked at the librarian confused. Who could possibly need two weeks to read 10 books? I was back in a couple of days. Of course, the hubris of that moment wore off quickly. Life crept in, in the form of sports teams and math homework. And by the time I was in high school, by the time I got to Song of Solomon, I was reading at a far more reasonable pace. It's difficult for me to talk about how important Song of Solomon was, is to me. I've never reread it front to back scared perhaps of losing that initial spark of joy. And yet there are still whole swaths of it that I can quote from memory. Lines like, I am not a strange woman, I am a small woman. I am small because I was pressed small or my favorite. If you surrendered to the air, you could ride it. The book slipped into my consciousness as though it were breath in a cold room. It became a part of me so invisibly and naturally that I knew upon finishing it, that I had turned a corner, that I wanted to be a writer in the tradition of Morrison, which is to say, a writer who writes boldly and without fear. And why not write that way? The path to my first novel, Homegoing, passes through the work of Toni Morrison, which passes through the work of Frederick Douglass, which passes through the lives of those enslaved peoples who wanted to learn to read and write so badly that they would risk their lives and limbs for the privilege. Morrison says, if writing is thinking and discovery and selection and order and meaning, it is also awe and reverence and mystery and magic. When I started thinking about Homegoing, my first novel, I was a sophomore in college, a young woman desperately seeking a little mystery and magic. I applied for and received a fellowship from Stanford University that would allow me to travel to to Ghana to conduct research for a novel. I admit freely to all of you listening today that I had no earthly clue what I was doing, what I had gotten myself into. I spent my summer in Ghana searching, thinking, trying to discover, to create order, and meaning. On a whim, I took a trip to the Cape Coast Castle, and from there, a road stretched out before me. I saw the beginnings of what would become homegoing. It was a seven year journey from conception to publication, and it remains and likely will always be one of the most significant research experiences of my life. When I finally finished a draft of the novel that I was ready to share with agents and editors, I felt almost bereft. I knew that once I crossed that line from anonymous writer to published novelist, my work would no longer be mine alone in the same way it once was. I had one of those rare, miraculous journeys in publishing, wherein my novel went to auction. In three days of phone calls, I talked to 10 editors who were hoping to bid on my book. They spoke to me about their visions for the work, for my career, about what they liked about the book, and what they thought could be improved. I agonized over who to choose, But ultimately, I went with the editor who completely unbidden said, you know, for some reason, this novel reminded me of Song of Solomon. At that point, I hadn't read Song of Solomon in almost a decade. But there it was proof that the ancestors walk with you. My work is largely concerned with the ways that the ancestors walk with us, the ways history, familial and societal continues to show up in our lives. In Homegoing, the structure made this idea clear, explicit. That novel was an investigation of the impact of the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism on one extended family over the course of 250 years in both Ghana and the United States. My new novel, Transcendent Kingdom, is far more intimate in scope. In it, a woman named Gifty is finishing up her doctorate at Stanford when her mother, who is suffering from depression, comes to stay, bringing all of the weight of their familial history with her. Gifty studies the neural circuitry of reward seeking behavior as a way of thinking about addiction and depression. She tells us that she was drawn to this work because it was the hardest thing you could do. And she wanted to do the hardest thing. But as we get to know her better, we understand that she does this work in part to cope with the loss of her brother to a heroin overdose, and with her mother's depression and emotional distance. It is a novel about the ghosts that haunt us and the ghosts that we inherit, the ones that haunted our parents and our siblings. From a craft perspective, Homegoing and Transcendent Kingdom are about as different as two novels can be. Homegoing is written in an omniscient third person. It has 14 chapters following 14 different point of view characters. It spans continents and centuries. By contrast, Transcendent Kingdom is a smaller book. First person narration, a single family, and for the most part, a single continent. To think about how they relate I want to return to what Morrison says about the origins of Black literature. She writes that the works were written to say, one, this is my historical life, my singular life, one that is personal, but also represents the race. And two, I write to persuade you, reader who is not Black, that I am a human being worthy of God's grace and the immediate abandonment of slavery. Homegoing was a novel about the effects of enslavement on generations of a family. It was written not just to demonstrate the humanity of the people who endured those conditions, but also to ask the question that scholar Sadia Hartman has been posing for years in her work on the aftermath of slavery, which is, did slavery really end? If it didn't, how does it show up in the lives of black people in America today? Transcendent Kingdom is one answer to that question. It is Giftie's singular life that of a woman who was raised in the predominantly white part of Huntsville, Alabama, in a church that was also predominantly white, a woman who is unpacking so much isolation and internalized racism throughout this work that she often must persuade herself of her worthiness of God's grace. I have been thinking a lot about Morrison's work throughout this pandemic, wondering what she might have written about this moment that we're in, where fewer than half of Black adults are employed, where Black people have disproportionately lost their lives to this disease, where videos of Black people being murdered are passed around social media with nearly the same casualness as memes. In other words, a moment that so clearly demonstrates that the afterlife of slavery is robust loss, that slavery has not truly ended. Not so long ago, though now, given the pandemic, it feels like lifetimes ago, I was having lunch with my editor. I had been living in Berlin for a year, and so I hadn't seen her in quite some time. We started talking about Toni Morrison's passing, trying to process the enormity of the impression she had made on the whole of Western literature. My editor said, Toni Morrison can never die. And I knew that it was true. She lives on in the gift of her novels, but also just as importantly, she lives on in all of us whose lives she touched. This is again, the power of literature, of reading. It seems like a small thing to hold a book, to pass your eyes over letters that group together to form words, that group together to form sentences, that group together to form paragraphs and so on and so on. You finish the book, you shelve it or return it to your local library. You sell it or donate it or lend it to a friend, never to be seen again. And it seems like that's it, the entire life of it. But instead, some small miracle is taking place every time you read. The book ends, but the words live on, switching vessels from paper pages on a screen to you, your mind, the site of your own memories. And I will stop there. Thank you
2: very much.
0: Hi, Yah. Welcome to Portland Arts and Lectures.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's so delightful to talk to you. I feel so honored that you're here. I know it's 10 o'clock at night and we're close to it in New York City. So thanks for staying up with us.
2: Thank you. Yes, it's great to be back.
0: I'm going to remind our audience who's watching that they can type questions for Yah in the chat box. We'll get to as many of those as we can. And in the meantime, I get to ask a few questions myself. That's kind of fun.
2: Thank you. Yes, it's great to be back.
0: Um, Gifty is such an incredible character and I want to start by asking you about her and her creation uh, because she herself is in the act of this sort of self-creation constantly in the novel and she's resisting the narratives that you have described white supremacy but also the immigrant narrative the addiction narrative the religion narrative she's just constantly resisting these processing this trauma and in some ways is this sort of unreliable narrator for us can you talk about what it was like to create that character? Did she arrive kind of whole in your head? Was she somebody that you discovered as you were writing? What was that process like for you?
2: That's a great question. Um, Gifty is definitely, as you said, I think an unreliable narrator in many ways. Um, primarily, she doesn't really know herself. And so she can't reveal the things that she uh, feels vulnerable about, because those are the areas that she's unwilling to examine. Um, She wasn't a character who came, you know, fully formed, I had this vague idea of who she might be, based on the work that she was interested in based on the family dynamic that she had grown up in Um, but as I started to write um, and started to think about ways that I might tease her out she became clearer and clearer to me Mm -hmm. Um, but I did find her to be an incredibly reticent character and a lot in a lot of ways a a difficult character to try to to capture because as I said she uh, has all of these walls up around the areas of her life that she's not particularly willing to um, to discuss.
0: Yeah, it's true of so many of the characters in the novel. I think the mother too, they are inscrutable and yet they are completely human and powerful. And I, one of the, it's one of the sort of magic tricks, I feel, of this novel from an artistic perspective is that, is that these folks are so reticent and not even self-aware necessarily or not willing to show us their self-awareness, at least as the reader, and yet they come out so fully formed. It's just a really, it's really powerful. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your two novels sort of in contrast because they're actually quite different. You've articulated that difference already in your talk, which again, I was really grateful for. And and I reread them last couple of weeks and they really did feel like almost reflections of each other in some ways. Um, Homegoing is a plot driven historical novel, you know, it's driven by the shape and form of history, slavery, racism, white supremacy, and all those themes show up in, in Transcendent Kingdom, but it's this intimate family, sort of an introverted novel in some ways with a very narrow time frame as opposed to that huge sweep of time in *Homegoing*. Like to what degree were you consciously thinking about *Homegoing* uh, when you set about writing Transcendent Kingdom? Was there an active part of your brain going back and forth between those books or what was that relationship like?
2: I don't think that there was an active part of my brain going back and forth. I wasn't, you know, consciously attempting to write something so completely different from Homegoing. Um, I just wanted to kind of find the right container for this story. And from the start, Transcendent Kingdom felt so... Um, was interested in so many different things. And the scale of the novel seemed so much smaller, so much more intimate, though obviously the themes are still quite quite large and, and encompassing um, because I knew that I was focused uh, down to the single family, the single woman, um, her her mother, her brother, her father, um, that I think changed the the way that I wanted to tell the story. And so it was it was really just again, about finding the right vessel for this particular story, which just felt um, from the beginning so different from from homegoing. Um, and, and I'll say, like I, I felt a great amount of freedom to, to do that, um, thanks to the fact that so many people were so responsive to Homegoing, it made me feel like, okay, maybe I can try something, something new um, and yeah. see where that takes me. So, so it was nice to, to have that kind of freedom.
0: It's so interesting to hear you say that because I think some debut novelists with great success that can feel really constricting, right? That success and that passion for that first novel—it can be, you, know, you see, them freeze in place almost. But that seems to have freed yeah. you. That's a really different reaction. So I, I love hearing that.
2: I mean, the the success was was amazing, and one of the things—it was constricting in some ways. Certainly, like I was more aware of the fact that um, that there was an audience, that there were people who would want to pick up my books, which is something that a first novelist is never never truly sure of right. before their book comes comes out. Um, but I think, given that knowing that there are people who who would like the things that I wrote, um, the writing process for Transcendent Kingdom felt felt very free.
0: Mm. I have a question from the audience along these lines. For, for Homegoing, I mean, it's interesting you felt this freedom in the second book, and I guess the question here is, did did you outline the topics, and, and how did you stay focused on on for mm. seven years on that vision of homegoing? Um, you know, as a novelist that hadn't published really very much work or, or any work, probably at the beginning at least, how did you stay focused and, and, and how was that process unfold for you, I guess?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it. I should say I didn't stay focused for all seven of those <laughs> years. I mean, I think part of the reason it took that many years is because there were, there were years where I was focused and years where I were, was less focused. Um, I started that novel when I was quite young. Um, I, I applied for a fellowship to travel to Ghana when I was 19, um, ended up going to Ghana when I was 20, um, and started the, the novel shortly thereafter, uh, after that research trip. But back then it wasn't something that I was fully devoting myself to. It wasn't until I left for grad school that I was able to kind of fully turn toward the novel. And that's when the focus I think began. Um, But I didn't outline, I I had a family tree that looks a lot like the one that's at the front of the book now, except mine had uh, dates and then perhaps one thing that was happening historically in the background during each time period. Um, so for Kojo's chapter, it was the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, for aquia's chapter, it was the Asantois War. Um, and that's kind of how, how I guided myself along. Um, but but very little to go, go off of. Mm.
0: I want to turn back to Transcendent Kingdom and ask, why is the mother character in the novel not named?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I was thinking about what I wanted that character to look like. And so much of what we see of her, we see through Gifty's eyes. Um, We see her in her kind of Meekness, um, the front story. She's she's almost um, entirely in bed for all of the front story, and then in the backstory, we get to see her as this 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 incredibly fearsome um, woman who Gifty even refers to as a as a snake, as the black mamba in her journals. Uh, and so this kind of shifting perception of Gifty. Um, needed, I thought, like a kind of blank slate template. She's only ever the mother to Gifty. Um, she's never anything else. Um, and that, that I think, gave me some room um, to change the way that Gifty's relating to her. Um, And also to think about Gifty's perspective a little more deeply, Gifty can't see her mother, doesn't see her mother as anything other than her mother, only sees her in this relational sense. So to give her a name, um, to give her this kind of separateness, this personhood outside of her relationship as Gifty's mother um, would kind of solidify that character in a way that I wasn't sure I wanted her to be completely solid.
0: Yeah, the power of a name and a relationship outside of one. There is this role reversal, too, of course. See, she's taking care of her mother now in that novel entirely. She's remembering her childhood, of course, and this is an interesting use of time. It struck me as being quite central, actually, and I wondered if you felt that way about that relationship, the the caretaking. I mean, obviously, it's a mother-daughter story, and it's hard, or that's how I felt about it, but what about that caretaking piece? How did that play in your imagination?
2: Yes, absolutely. The the caretaking was hugely important, and in many ways, I think of it as a novel that is about caretaking about how we show up for one another when we show up for one another and it is highlighting this moment that I think you know so many come to this crossroads where we find ourselves in a position of having to take care of ailing or uh, aging parents Um, and it's a it's a area that I don't see explored very much in fiction Um, and and yet one that I I have Seen so many people go through, and have heard family members talk about how difficult of a transition that is. Mm. Um, so there are many different layers of this caretaking at play. There's the caretaking of of um, of Nana Gifty's brother um, through his addiction. There's the mother's job as a home health aide, which involves caretaking, and then of course there's Gifty taking care of her mother when her mother herself falls ill. Um, so so yes, it's very much I think about how. How we show up for people, um, even when they uh, may not or have not necessarily shown up for us um, in the past, um, and why why we do that, and and what that demonstrates about uh, the the kind of capaciousness of love.
0: I love thinking about that, and and it, the way I experienced that in the novel as a reader was sort of there's a a tenderness that's never spoken or even expressed directly. The tenderness is always there, but you know when she's cleaning up nana after an episode and he's he's essentially almost an adult at that point it's very brusque you know what i mean you sort of move on but there's yeah. also this tenderness and i thought that was a that shows up all across the novel it's a really interesting aspect to those characters
2: yeah yeah there's you know gifty's mother is um Again, she's a, she's a difficult character, a difficult woman, and and has very difficult relationships with her children. Um, but there are these moments of great tenderness, of great care, of great affection, um, where you get to see her kind of come to life um, via the lens of these, these children who adore her even beyond that, that harsh exterior, yeah. um, and she them. So, uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Teresa's asked a follow-on question to this. Um, in the chat, which is, uh, so which is your favorite character in Transcendent Kingdom and why?
2: Oh, that's a hard question. Um, Which is my favorite character? I mean, I'm I'm partial to Nana, um, who I think is one of the few characters in the novel who really kind of provides that safe space for Gifty um, Mm -hmm. to be herself, to feel. loved and cherished, Um, she is, you know, her parents, for better or for worse, um, are kind of preoccupied with other things, trying to make a life in America, caring for Nana through his illness. Um, Gifty gets left behind um, fairly fairly frequently, and Nana becomes that kind of soft landing space for her, Mm. uh, and the place, the person with whom she is the most vulnerable. Um, And so I I love him for what he provides for her and how he allows us to see her um, in these moments of of vulnerability that she doesn't allow herself um, in any other instance really.
0: Both your novels deal with time in in very different ways. Homegoing has a sort of linear and fairly fast moving pace. I don't mean that the sections are fast, but that they leapfrog time. Um, It's sort of undoubtedly an epic story but inside 300 pages and or, or, or change. And Transcendent Kingdom moves back and forth, actually very freely through time. Time is extremely elastic. I heard you use the phrase shapeshifter there. And I think for time, that the role of time in this is helping us feel that. It's definitely a, what I would call a lyrical novel in a small space. Can you talk about how, as an artist and as a writer, like the strategies for using time in both those books are different?
2: I was incredibly conscious about how I wanted to think about and portray time in in both of those novels. Um, Homegoing for me is very much about time and the impact of of things that we think of as being in a distant past um, on our present. And in that way, it was important to me that we felt the sweep of time in such a way that it became apparent to us by the time we finished the novel um, that nothing ever leaves, that everything is kind of happening all at once, that there's this kind of accumulative feeling to how we experience time whether or not we're conscious of that or not Um, and so so Homegoing was was an opportunity to look at things like slavery and colonialism over this very long period of time Um, and, and that structure of moving from generation to generation um from uh, Gold Coast to present-day America um, allowed me to think about the ways that time shows up in our lives, um, to think about the, the impact of the generations on the present, um, and that was incredibly intentional. Um, when, I, when I first started that novel, I thought that I would have a different structure. I thought it would be set in the present and just flash back to Ghana, and the reason that I changed the structure was because I felt like we were losing... That sense of time, that message of time. Um, so, so yes, incredibly intentional about it. Um, for Transcendent Kingdom, um, the the only way I can think to describe it is that I wanted the novel to read the way a life is lived. You know, this this feeling of like moving through your present and being um, confronted with these these memories, confronted with these moments of of flashing back to, you know, a childhood smell or um, a childhood song or um, whatever, whatever the case might be. And so I I kind of um, knew from the very beginning that it couldn't be a linear novel, that it wasn't engaging with time in that in that way. Um, I wanted the front story to be very still, you know, again, Gifty's taking care of her mother, who spends most of that time in bed, there's not much Happening, um, and yet time is constantly encroaching. The past is constantly encroaching um, on that um, on that story, on that stillness, in a way that, um, that troubles that water. Um, and so, time is is deeply important to me. I think all novels are ultimately kind of thinking about time and um, mm-hmm. and what we can do with time and how we might manipulate time, because we know as we're reading that it's not real, that something artificial is happening. Um, so the malleability of, of how we think about time when reading a novel, I think, um, is one of the reasons you write and, and one of the reasons that we enjoy reading.
0: Yeah. You mentioned you know, Morrison, obviously, and then Douglas' influences and people you read that really matter to you, foundational artists. In an interview in the LA Review of Books, years ago you talked also about reading Baldwin's Sonny's Blues and that you said that you read Sonny's Blues once a year. I don't know if you still do that or not, but um, can you talk about that story particularly, why it's important
2: to you? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think I was first assigned that story in a, in a creative writing class my freshman year of college, um, and I, I actually remember that I didn't really get it right away. It didn't it didn't move me the first time I read it. Um, there was something difficult about it that felt like it was kind of keeping me at bay. It wasn't until I reread it, um, maybe a, a month or so later, um, that it started to kind of act on me. And one of the things that I really love about that story, um, thinking again about structure, is that, you know, he's writing about the blues, he's writing about jazz, and he's um, and he's using the structure to kind of mimic that. So there's this rhythmic quality to the way that story is told um, that I find really, really complex and elegant. And I, I don't know if I understand it still, even after having reread it um, all of these all of these times over these years. Um, but it's it's a story that um, that feels kind of perfect to me. Mm. Um, so I, I, I love that story um, and I love Baldwin generally. Um, I was telling the students earlier. Go tell it on the mountain is one of my favorite novels. Um, I used to teach it when I taught. It's his first novel, um, and to come out of the gate, you know, with that kind of a um, that kind of brilliance is really uh, astounding to me. Um, it's also one of the few novels that I can think of um, that writes about evangelicalism, um, specifically Pentecostalism, um, in a way that is, um, measured and generous, um, and ecstatic, um, and still kind of demonstrates the exuberance of that religion without, um, without judgment or harshness while still being critical of the, the negative impacts of that religion. It's a model for me. Certainly it was a model for, for Transcendent Kingdom.
0: Yeah. Talk about a debut. Wow. Um, <laughs> I want to stay on influence a little bit, if you don't mind. In 2016, you talked about, in, a, in an opinion piece in the Times, you talked about sort of Morrison and Achebe being in sort of conversation in some way, right? You're hearing that in your head as they're in conversation. And I, a light switch went off for me when I was reading that. I sort of feel like so much of your work feels like it's right in between those writers, right? Almost a bridge between those writers. And, and I wondered, is that kind of a place where you would love to be or are? I think you are, but I mean, I wonder how you think about that in the tradition.
2: You know, I, I I feel as though part of the reason that I wanted to write in the first place is because I felt so kind of displaced from these two sides, these two parts of myself, these identities that I couldn't quite um, grap- grapple with. Um, I was, I am Ghanaian, um, but often felt as though I wasn't Ghanaian enough for Ghanaians. Um, I am uh, American, but often felt as though I wasn't American in the sense that other Americans experience that. Um, so in that way, um, I will always be in between um, these two these two cultures: the West African literary tradition, the African American literary tradition. Luckily for me, they're both literary traditions that I deeply love and admire, and um, want to be in conversation with. And through reading um, these these authors who exemplify these traditions, I am able to see the connections um, between them. Um, in ways that that are helpful to me as a writer, but also I think allow me to feel a little more situated in myself, just as a as a person. Mm. Um, you know, Morrison has given so much to me. Um, you know, even though I I haven't experienced so many of the things that she talks about in her work, even though Song of Solomon was a book that um, that didn't really speak to me personally in the sense of sharing the autobiographical kind of details of my life Um, and yet I saw myself in it Mm. Um, and how how a writer does that I think is um, a bit of the magic but I think it it speaks to thinking about the specificity that you bring to the table Um, and Transcendent Kingdom I think is an example of that specificity like it's a it's a Ghanaian immigrant family in Huntsville, Alabama, and at least when I was growing up, only a couple of those. So um, having that um, be a part of the conversation now is beyond the kind of representation matters um, ideology. I think there's something about being able to kind of, um, as Morrison said, like write the book that you want to see, write the book that you wish you could have read, um, That that is hugely important. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned Alabama, where you grew up. Was it hard to write about a place so familiar? I mean, you actually write about a lot of places that you're familiar with in, in Trenton and Kingdom. I think of California, think of Alabama. And I think a lot of the places, obviously, in Homegoing were remote, whether they were talking about time or place. Uh, what was that experience like um, for you?
2: It was really nice. Um, I, I love thinking about place and thinking about the ways that, that place impacts what we might think of as, like, um, immutable aspects of our character. Um, And I think part of why I think so much about that is because of the way that I grew up. I moved around quite a bit as a child, even beyond immigrating to America. I lived in Ohio, Illinois, Tennessee, Alabama. Um, And each of those moves, what I started to see was that so much of who we think we are um, so much of the things that we kind of believe to be deeply ingrained in us again immutable unchangeable in us have a lot to do with the people who are around us and the ways that they think um, the things that they're told the things that their parents teach them um, the churches that they go to or don't go to um, and so that 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 understanding um, that we can change depending on where we are made made writing this this opportunity to think about how place affects affects character um and gifty and her sibling nana and and her parents are these characters who are incredibly incredibly informed by this place the situation um so writing about huntsville um was in in some ways i think um an opportunity to think even more deeply about what that place had given to me, um, but certainly about what that place might do to characters in these specific circumstances. Mm. So do
0: you, at this point, as part of your identities, do you consider yourself a Southern writer and part of that tradition?
2: Mm. That's an interesting question. I do, I do think of myself as a Southern writer. I, both of my books have, have been set in part in the South, um, and um, I recognize in saying that, it, but again, it's a very specific view of the South. It's a very specific lens. Um, Huntsville itself is an incredibly particular place. Um, think of it as the kind of blue dot um, in the sea of red uh, that is Alabama, um, and yet it's a, a very segregated city Um, And my family lived on the predominantly white side. Um, So to write about the South um, is an opportunity to show the sides of it that I know, um, which are certainly different than the sides of it that, you know, somebody like Faulkner writes about um, and different even than somebody like Jesmyn Ward writes about. And I adore both of those writers um, and think of them as firmly, you know, planted in the South. And I know that my South isn't their South, um, but yes, still, Hmm. still a Southern writer.
0: Yeah. Uh, Barbara asks how you chose the title transcendent kingdom. And I think there's a passage early in the novel about, um, homo sapiens were the only creature that believed they had transcended their kingdom. How did that all come together for you? And why did you choose that as your
2: title? Yeah, that's right. Um, the the title came on pretty early, uh, pretty early in the process. After I had written um, that sentence that you just mentioned, um, Gifty has a school teacher who says um, something like Homo sapiens are the only animal who believe that they have transcended their kingdom, um, and she's talking about the classifications, right? Kingdom, phylum, class, order, um, as in humans are the only animals who who. Don't believe that they're animals. Who think there's something greater than that, um, and and for a novel where this character Gifty, is deeply interested in what makes us human, um, what means to be alive, um, how sense of this world, this place that we're in um, how we might make sense of a life in which senseless things happen Um, she seemed invested in that idea um, that maybe there's something more to our humanness than just our animalness Um, and so that that title felt like it was the one that was kind of grappling most closely with the things that Gifty herself is interested in, in her research, um, but also I, I think even in her her spirituality, um, those same questions applied to both sides. So Transcendent Kingdom felt felt right ultimately.
0: The epigraphs of the novel, two poets, Sharon Olds, John Manley Hopkins. Are you a poetry fan? What does poetry do for you? Do you read a lot of poetry? Why did you choose those epigraphs? Tell me about poetry in your life.
2: Yeah. Yes, I, um, I'm a huge poetry fan. I agree we should talk about poetry more than, more than we do, certainly. Um, I, those two poems that are used as the epigraph are both poems that I encountered um, in high school, actually. Um, and I remember in high school feeling as though I didn't really like poetry. Um, I knew that I wanted to write fiction um, I thought of myself as a fiction writer. I basically only read fiction. And I remember a, a great teacher, Janice Vaughn, um, my my junior year English teacher, who um, assigned a, a poetry unit. Um, I remember going up to her and telling her, you know, I can't do this poetry assignment. I don't understand what this poet is saying. And she said, um, very simply, um, it just means what it says, um, which Which kind of blew me away, like I thought that that you needed like an answer key in order to understand a poem. Um, and then here was this new way of thinking about a poem that what it's offering you um, is what it's offering you. You don't have to kind of um, approach it as though it's this mystery to be solved. You can kind of let it wash over you and take from it what it gives. And I think that was kind of the beginning of a different way of relating to poetry. And in that same year, um, I discovered these two poets that, that turned out to be poets who um, have stayed with me for my entire reading and writing life Gerard Manley Hopkins and. and Sharon Olds, um, two very, very different poets, um, but whose, whose work I um, have loved for, for years and years.
0: Mm. I love that answer. And Janice Vaughn, is that the name of the... the, the <laughs> that is. It's amazing yeah. how many writers come to our stage, such as it is today, virtual being what it is, who could remember at least one English teacher, usually in their middle school or, or elementary school days, who turned them on. So just shout yeah. out to all the English teachers. Watching tonight, we appreciate you and you're you're all re- all remembered. <laughs> um, the last thing I'll ask yeah. you, and I, I we leave this for last often here. What advice would you give to writers, young and old? Some wisdom that you've earned, and I use that word carefully, earned over the course of your career so far.
2: You know the the best advice, which also always feels like the cheapest or the easiest somehow, though it's um, though it's the truest that I can think of, is just to keep reading as much as possible um and to read in such a way that allows you to remember that the that the end goal isn't just you know a a published novel it's to be in conversation with these other books Mm. um and so if you're ever feeling um a little lost in your process or feeling um like you're not really sure what the point of the work that you're doing is um, which can happen in the middle of a, of a book, uh, in the middle of a novel. Um, I think reading is always the way to to remind you um, why we do this work, what, what impact this work might have. And so keep reading.
0: I love that. It brings us almost totally full circle to the <laughs> beginning of your talk. So I'm going to leave it there. It has been such an honor to have you. And um, I hope I get a chance to bring you here and here in real life sometime again soon. Thank you very much, Yah. Ja.
2: My pleasure, thank you so much. Hope to see you soon as well.
0: That was Jan Jesse from Portland Arts & Lectures in May, 2021. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for The Archive Project a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from The Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire literary arts staff board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.